Folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, August the 10th, and this is episode 957 of the Survival Podcast. So i got a cool one for you guys today. I know it's Friday, 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 and that usually means calls to the think line and you know, my responses to them. Um... Uh, in the words of Bobby Boucher from The Waterboy, the search continues, and the search in this case is a search for the new Spearco homestead somewhere in east, west, south, something Texas, somewhere around two-hour beltway around the Dallas area. Uh, so right now, Dorothy and I are actually looking at land, property, and homes uh, somewhere in that nebulous area as, as you're listening to this, and that means I had to bug out early this week. And uh, put the dogs in dog jail again, and uh, and head down there. So because of that, uh, there is no uh, Friday call-in show today. Uh, but I have a really awesome show for you. I had the good fortune yesterday to interview a guy we'll call Glenn Tate, and uh, that was supposed to go out next week. But we'll just flip things around uh, to accommodate my bug out. And uh, Glenn is the author of a new prepper uh, novel series, a whole series of books. He's also a member of our forum. I'll tell you about that more in a moment. Before I do, though, let me take care of our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one today, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you and help make sure the show is here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one today, ShelfReliance.com. Notice I said ShelfReliance, like a shelf you put things onto, versus self like you yourself, because they specialize in innovative food storage solutions that allow you to eat what you store and store what you eat and constantly rotate your canned food supply, whether it's stuff right off the supermarket shelf or long-term storage food. Now, if you want long-term storage food, they got that for you, too, with the largest selection of variety and high-quality long-term storage food I've seen anywhere from anyone today with the Thrive brand of long-term storage food. If you're looking to increase your long-term storage capacity, check out Thrive, and I promise you you'll find something even your picky eater kids will be happy to eat should the day come you need to break into them. In fact, this food's so good, you'd be happy to eat it tomorrow night for dinner. Uh, check them out today. Again, ShelfReliance.com. Next up today, the Free State Project. You know, we talk about voting with our dollars based on which companies we do business with or don't do business with. We talk about voting with the ballot box uh, every couple of years when we vote in uh, the next group of ass clowns that will keep doing what the last group of ass clowns did to us while the old ass clowns go get jobs as lobbyists. There's another way to vote, though, that's far more effective. It's called voting with your feet. If your state's doing something stupid, one of the best ways you can vote uh, against what they're doing is to leave and go to another state. That's what the federal republic that we live in, that we don't teach people about anymore, is actually founded on. The belief that each of the states has their own sovereignty and therefore would have to compete for the best minds, businesses, and citizens through their own individual state policies. Well, one group of people decided, why don't we pick one state and go there and try to turn it into the freest state in the nation? So they selected New Hampshire. And uh, they are, again, the Free State Project at freestateproject.org. And you can move there and vote with your feet. Now, what if you're like me and you love what these guys are doing, but you, you just really don't want to go to New Hampshire? It's just not in the cards for you. It's a family thing. It's a job thing. It's you don't like cold weather. I don't know. It's just, it's just not in the cards for you. Um, personally, I'd love to live there, but it doesn't work for me with the family obligations that I have. So 
I support them by actually they don't sponsor my show. I sponsor them. I've given them this sponsorship uh, slot uh, where all my other sponsors have to pay for theirs. So that's the way I'm helping them. There might be other ways you can help them. You can blog about them. You can contribute to them. You can attend their events. Folks, we're all in the same fight here, and I really recommend that you figure out some way you can help support the Free State Project. Best way to find the Free State Project Shelf Reliance and all of our sponsors go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on their banners in the right-hand margin. You'll know you're dealing with somebody that actually has my personal endorsement versus a brand pirate, and they're out there. I don't think there's many brand pirates for the Free State Project, but for our other sponsors, they're out there, folks. Next up, check out TSP Copper. You want to support the Free State Project? How about this? You can support the Free State Project, and you can support the Survival Podcast today. You can go to tspcopper.com and buy some Free State Project copper rounds with the porcupine on it. You can give those to people and tell them what the Free State Project's all about. We'll make a little bit of money, and since it's a licensed coin from the Free State Project, they'll make a little bit of money. How cool is that? So that's a way you can help, you know, kind of two-in-one and get some really cool coins, including things like uh, Ron Paul's coins are awesome. They're just beautiful. Uh, you can get uh, the ones for beekeeping. We just did a beekeeping show. So you can, I mean, you can think of it, Second Amendment, Republic of Texas. It's all there, guys, tspcopper.com. And you guys that are MSB members, don't forget to get your 10% discount on all co copper orders at TSP Copper. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And uh, when you do get that exclusive content, the other thing you're going to get are discounts to a whole bunch of people. Like yesterday, I just got you guys a new one, uh, the CERT training tools uh, available for next level training that sell for a couple hundred, three hundred dollars and up, you know, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred dollars, depending on the options, uh, that are awesome top of the line training tools, uh, self resetting trigger laser training tools, uh, 20.5%. So one purchase there would pay back your MSB. That's the kind of discounts I'm working to get you guys as we go forward. Some of you maybe have wondered why I haven't added a lot more vendors this year. It's because I'm looking for really select, high-end stuff that I can get for you that's not already represented. So I don't dilute uh, the people that are already in there that have been supporting you for a long time just by letting every Tom, Dick, and Harry in. Uh, and this is a definitely a unique one. So... Remember also, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders like paramedics, uh, active duty or prior service, I give you a discount on my member's brigade. Just send me an email with service discount in the subject line, and I'll send you the discount code and instructions on how to use it. With that, I have the uh, regular housekeeping uh, wrapped up. Before I bring Glenn on, though, I do have to uh, make a correction. Uh, I strive for accuracy. Uh, if you go to my site and read my disclaimers, you'll see that I do not consider myself a journalist. I consider myself an educator, an informer, and an entertainer. And I try to do those things in balance. But when I report on things, I try to report accurate based on the information that I have. Uh, this week, I kind of went on a rant about Mike Adams, uh, the health ranger, over at naturalnews.com. And a very nasty piece of yellow journalism he did about a guy that built some ponds and had to get, you know, ended up in jail after a 10-year battle over it. I said I did not agree with the state, but I also thought that Mike's article was crap. I'm not here to tell you I got that wrong. Mike's article is crap. Uh, I, I can't I can't believe what an atrocious piece of crap. And this guy is putting himself off to look like a journalist. And uh, the, the reporting is terrible. The headline was the one that says, Oregon criminalizes permaculture. Now, I don't want to go too much back onto this, but before I make my correction, I want to make sure that I'm not recanting what I've said about this jerk, this journalistic hack, uh, who has been willing to bend anything any way he can to further his agenda as though the ends justify the means, uh, which is damaging to the liberty movement as far as I'm concerned. 
Well, let's just think about the headline. Oregon criminalizes permaculture. Even if you don't know what conjugation of verbs are, you understand them if you speak English, and criminalizes infers now, that it's doing it now. Uh, again, the, law, the water laws, the water rights laws have been in place since 1925, and no, Oregon did not criminalize permaculture. What I got wrong, two things. Number one, I said Oregon should sue Mike Adams. That was because I was angry and acting like an idiot because I was pissed off. Oregon should not sue Mike Adams. No state should be able to sue a blogger because of their opinion uh, or because of their reporting, even if it's wrong. It would set a dangerous precedent, and that I should not have said. I retract that. The other thing I said is that the guy never got any permits for his ponds. The reason I said that is when I did my research, I based it on Mr. Adams' claims, which were bullshit. If you read the article that Mike wrote, you will read the article to say, the, it reads as though the man got the permits, built the ponds, and then the state pulled the permits back. It's not what happened. He built the ponds way before the permits were issued with no permits. He was cited, fined, found guilty, and appealed. During the appeal, he was issued a temporary permit, which was eventually retracted as part of the appeal process. And 10 years later, he ended up with his ass in jail for 30 days and a fine. Do I think this man should have been put in jail and fined uh, for building these ponds? No, but that's because the law exists that says he can't do what he did. I also want to point out something I didn't cover. The main issue here was that this is on a kind of a, a protected refuge area of land. This isn't just a general place in Oregon either. That's what made this, this more hotly contested. And I would also like to point out that the guy went to jail not for building the ponds. He went to jail for multiple refusals to comply with removing them, right? So Oregon did not criminalize permaculture. Mike Adams is still a journalistic hack, and his stance on the Second Amendment of I support it but I don't allow any firearms content on my site is freaking cowardice, and I won't retract that. I also got an email from somebody today. I got a couple emails like this that said, I respected you until you came down on Mike Adams. I don't respect you anymore. Nonsense. You know, whatever. Let me tell you something, guys. I, I want to be clear on this because I think this is important. You ever listen to talk radio and they, and somebody will call in and say, you know, not all Muslims are terrorists? And what, is, what do they usually say? They say, well, then where are the non-terrorist Muslims? Where are they? Why don't they stand up and condemn the actions of the terroristic, hateful Muslims? I think it's a valid point. I think it's a valid point that they're not all terrorists, too. But I think that's a valid point. You ever hear somebody talking about cops and cops being abusive and, you know, you know, lighting people up with a taser for filming something and doing something that cops shouldn't be doing? And what do we say then? We say that the, the and the people say, well, there are great police officers. Most police are good, honest men. And we say that they, and I've said it before, and I think everybody agrees with me, they should be the first ones to stand up and say, no, that is wrong. Condemn that action. Get in the way of that action. Point it out that if they want to further their agenda, that that's what they need to do. They need to police their own. We are not immune to that formula. When somebody in the liberty movement does stupid crap and sensationalizes, you know, takes things to the extreme, reports things inaccurately, takes actual facts but strings them together clearly to lead somebody to the wrong conclusion, we need to be the very first people that stand up and say it's wrong. So that's why I said something about it. And now, once again, on to happier things. Again, it's my good fortune now to introduce Glenn Tate. Glenn is the author of a 10-book Prepper novel series called 299 Days, published by Prepper Press. The books describe an average guy who prepares for and lives through a partial collapse of the United States. 
Glenn's also a moderator on the TSP forum under the name of Heavy G, and he currently lives in Olympia, Washington. This is a new series, by the way, guys. It's not yet available, but you can go to 299days.com, 299days.com. You can get some free bonus chapters sent to you as they're released, and you can get a notice when the book's available. Actually, there's going to be six releases of two books a release. It's ten or five releases of two books a piece. There's there's uh there's uh ten total books in this series. They're all already written, so you know they're gonna come out every three months the way that they tell us. I just wanted to be clear you can't get them yet, but you can get on kind of the alert list to get them. And uh again the website for that is two hundred and ninety nine days dot com. And with that, hey Glenn, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. Thank you so much for having me, Jack. It's, uh, I've been listening to your show for over four years now, and it's an absolute thrill to be on. Thank you again. Well, I'd like to thank you for being here today and, and for including us a little bit in your project here and for your service on our forum as well. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. So we're here to talk about uh, your book series, 299 Days. It was actually a series plan. We'll get to that in, in a moment, but it's this first book that's coming out real, real soon you know, just start out with, well, what is this book about? Yeah, this book is about um, a prepper who realizes that he needs to prep. I got to say this is based on me because this is the process I went through. And um, this guy realizes he needs to prep. He has a lot of inside information um, like I do in, in real life. I describe it as a front row seat to the uh, corruption that's going on and so he sees all these things uh going wrong and going poorly and and that a collapse is coming his wife is reluctant to say the least uh to prep and uh, he needs to do it anyway he's a man he needs to take care of his family and that's how it is and so he preps in secret there's an unraveling and a couple big events i'll try not to put any spoilers in uh there's a bug out and um, out at his bug out place, uh, there's a community that forms up. And by the way, it doesn't form up in any cheesy comic book way where everybody is, you know, um, everybody's sharing everything because they think that's a great idea. There are some bad people out there too. Well, out of the community, it forms up and starts to govern itself because there's pretty much no government left. And uh, there are some visitors, I'll leave it at that, who come to the community. And then there's. Uh, a pretty good good battle between patriots and what I call loyalists, who are the folks who are, are loyal to the uh, the old government. And that, in a nutshell, is what the book's about. And how is this then different from other books that are in the same genre, like Patriots or Lights Out or things like that? Yeah, it's it's a partial collapse because I think that's more likely. And what I mean by a partial collapse is... The government still functions in many places, in regions of the country, uh, the Northeast uh, in particular. There's still a federal government. Um, the partial collapse is also only partial because the utilities stay on. In every other book you mentioned, um, the utilities completely go out. You know, when there's an EMP, obviously, an electromagnetic pulse, you know, there's no more electricity, which means there's no more running water and all that other stuff. All that could happen, and it's something that, to the extent it's possible to prepare for, you should try to prepare for it. But my theory, and this isn't just in this book, it's my theory in life, and it's got a lot of life experience backing it up. The more dramatic something is, the less likely it is to occur. And so I thought about collapse scenarios, and I thought, well, a meteor striking the earth and killing 99% of people, well, that's pretty dramatic. 
it's less likely to occur than something you've talked about for a long time, which is getting a flat tire on your way to work. Um, and so I thought, well, this this all-in or all-out sort of collapse scenario, this total collapse scenario probably isn't as likely as a partial one. So I started thinking, well, what would a partial collapse look like? It would be a, an economic um, meltdown. It would be a political disintegration, um, some states leaving the union, that sort of thing. Um, basically, the government just not having any any real control over folks because the government has no more money. Um, and and the utilities would stay on. And, and the way the utilities stay on in this book is is a really interesting plot twist that I won't give away, but it's actually believable, I believe, how the utilities would stay on because a lot of preppers are saying, oh, come on, the first thing to go is the grid. And that could happen. But It, it could happen, but there's also the concept of things like, well, you got to keep the nuclear electricity plants running at least or they'll blow the hell up. Yeah, so we're going to put a priority on making that not happen, and I'm not saying it could never happen, but I don't know if you've ever seen the series on it's either in Discovery or History or whatever, Life After People, and that's I, like if people just vanished like the Rapture or something, but it was everybody. That's like one of the first things that's going to happen is the plants will melt down. So there's there, to me that, and I guess you know you probably reference stuff like this, but. Um, you know, when the Soviet Union broke, broke apart, it, the power didn't go off everywhere. It went off in places. It became intermittent. It became less reliable. But um, we've kind of figured out how this stuff works now. Exactly right. And you brought up the Russian example, and that is what I foresee happening in the United States. And in Russia in the early 90s and throughout the 90s, uh, there was runaway inflation, but it wasn't the hyperinflation described in Patriots. There were there were criminals and there were gangs and the government was bad, but it wasn't Mad Max, you know, cannibalism, apocalyptic stuff. People basically muddled through. Um, the birth rate went down and a lot of people died needlessly and there was a lot of tragedy. I'm not implying this is some kind of case. I think the number one, number one and two causes of death were probably criminal activity and drinking yourself to death. <laughs> exactly. Exactly, and so uh, that's what I foresee, sort of a Russian collapse. I think the Argentine collapse uh, in 2000 is another likely scenario. These were all, in my mind, partial collapses, and, and it's what I think we're heading for. And one of the reasons that this book got picked up by, by a publisher, Prepper Press, um, I assume, uh, is that there aren't any books out there that I know of um, that talk about this partial collapse idea. They're all or nothing, and I just don't think that's realistic. Well, and I, you were kind of dancing around the term I used there for a while, but the inverse relationship of probability uh, and impact. Yep. The bigger the impact, the lower the probability that you're going to individually uh, experience it. And I think that, you know, there's like a new, there's all the new shows are being announced for the fall right now. And the only one that excites me at all is that revolution. But it's another example of everything or nothing. And, you know, I, I think I've said many times I'd love to see a book or a movie or a series about a more realistic type of event. Maybe it's not as sensational, but it's a hell of a lot more real. And there's there's plenty that can go on in these scenarios that are exciting and twisting and concerning and, and everything else you look for in, in a story or a movie like this. Yep, and I think I think that's this book series. And one of the other things that I think makes it different is – this front row seat to the corruption I have. I want to be real clear with listeners. I don't want to exaggerate. I don't want to imply I'm some super secret spy guy or some <laughs> Department of Homeland Security official. It's nothing like that. In fact, it's a white-collar job that would actually probably seem a little boring. But I get to observe things, 
And, uh, for example, I'll just mention this. It's been on the forum before. Um, uh, I've been to the past two, you know, governor's balls, inaugural balls, for example. So I, I travel in these circles because it's part of my job, and I see political and economic things. And one of the reasons that this book, I think, is different is that I don't just say, oh, yeah, there was an EMP and the lights went out. I mean, I talk about, actually, the characters talk about, because these characters, most of them are real people. They're based on real things, and they describe what they see. Here's an example. Um, there's a political consultant who's a character in the book, and she describes what she sees, what happens in the conference rooms, what happens in the meeting rooms, how people get elected, how they spend other people's money to get elected, all these things. And this builds over time. So you see, as the reader, um, my idea of what's wrong down to the detailed level, but it's told through characters. It's not some boring white paper on, you know, here's Social Security spending, here's a chart, here's a graph, none of that. You see through people, and they change. This political consultant, for example, starts off very gung-ho for her side, and, um, you know, towards the middle and then into the end of the book, she's saying, my goodness, this is, this is a fraud, this is a scam, I've been used. And so you see it that way. So it describes how a collapse is going to happen, um, through characters, and I've got, without exaggerating, I've got an inside track a little bit on this. Yeah, and I'll tell you, it's actually beginning to frighten me because <laughs> I had no inside track on this stuff when I started out, uh, and I largely haven't, and I've had people say, you know, I'll, I'll give you this information or that information, and I've tried to actually stay away from it so that my opinion is completely impartial but as the show's matured and the audience has matured, I, I have talked to more people. And for instance, I won't say which congressman, but I just spoke to an individual that I met face to face who's a deputy director for the office of a United States congressman. And I said, does your boss know about me? And he said, yes. I said, does he think I'm crazy or does he think, does he think I'm, 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 you know, on on some of this? He said, he actually thinks you're spot on. Wow, and, and then you're collaborate, collaborating this from a different angle altogether, from a different viewpoint. And I think it's something people really need to take seriously. And whether it's fiction novels, they're based on fact, or whether it's a podcast or anything, I just want people to pay attention. And uh, so what I'm saying to the audience is what you're telling me jives with a completely different source. And I'm not a professional journalist. I'm a podcaster. I'm an entertainer. But when I try to get to the facts... I try to follow at least you know basic journalistic protocol of corrobor you know corroborating things with two distinctive different sources, and that does line up here to what you're saying. Yeah, and I want to be clear and not scare people because, and you've been on this for since the day you started podcasting. Um, you've been talking about people not getting emotional and not having fear drive their decisions. So I want to be clear about something. When I talk about the inside track. Um, it's not like I have conversations with people where they say, hey, you know what? We've got a bunch of FEMA death camps, and we're going to herd people in there. I, I'll give you an example of a kind well, of – Well, they do have FEMA death camps. <laughs> we have the documentation, and we know it's there. They're coming to get you now. You're going to go on the blue line or the – you know, yeah, you're, you're not into that. Right. I mean, a conversation I had, and I'll change things a bit and generalize, but it'll give you a flavor of it. And this is with somebody, I'll just say, who knows what he's talking about and gets to see – non-classified but political and economic information that most people don't get to see. And I kind of approached him. I call it in the book uh, the conversation, and that's where you have this, this conversation with people. You're kind of feeling them out, finding out if maybe they're open to this idea that they maybe need to prepare, seeing if they're preppers. So we had the conversation. 
Um, and I found out he was indeed a prepper. By the way, that's very interesting. Some people in, in the higher levels of government um, who are taking the same precautions that you and I are, that's really telling. But I was talking to him, and I kind of led him down this path. I said, so this amount of money we're spending on things, uh, you think this is sustainable? And he laughed. He said, oh, no, it's not sustainable. This is all going to come crashing down. It's a matter of time. Um, that's why, and then we started talking about preps. He said, that's why I do X, Y, and Z and all this other stuff. So that's kind of what I'm talking about, this realization among decision makers, many of them, I don't know what percentage of them, but many decision makers, at least the ones I run into, that uh, this isn't going to go on forever and that bad things are going to happen and that you need to take some steps to prepare, but don't lose your head. Be rational about it. Those are the kind of conversations I have, so I don't want to scare people. No, and I completely agree with that, but I mean, I'll cooperate that as well with, with saying things like, with all the different gun shows and stuff that members of the audience go to, SHOT Show and things like that, I've had, and, and audience members have had conversations with FBI agents, ATF agents, all different levels of law enforcement at the federal level, they, they're preppers too. And they're saying, look, we just, we're just reading the pulse. And I think it's interesting that we're coming to a point in time where people with all these different views, it's like everybody's in a house looking out a different window, but they're all getting the same picture. And I actually think that gives me a lot of hope because most of the time when this crap happens, everybody's like, wow, I didn't know that was going to happen. And I think this time around, like it's such a big pimple that's about to burst, you, you can't help but see it. Exactly. And you just said a word that's another key difference between this book and, and most of the others that are out there, and that's the word hope. There's hope in this book, and it's not cheesy hope like, uh, oh, yeah, we snapped our fingers. Everybody realized that we need to change our ways. Everyone became a constitutionalist, and we lived happily ever after. No, here's the hope. And by the way, I didn't expect to, to find this out, but I started talking to lots of people like I've mentioned. And here's the hope. The hope is that I think this thing turns around eventually after a painful process. Um, and the reason it turns around is that I have great faith in significant portions of the military and law enforcement. You mentioned FBI agents and others, um, and, and I, you know, I, I have friends in the military, and we talk about things. Um, the book is hopeful. There are good guys, and you, you've had Oath Keepers on. You've had Stuart Rhodes on um, many times, and Oath Keepers play a pretty big role. By name, I use the name. Oh, that's awesome. Oh yeah, I, I say you know one of the one of the characters who's a special forces, a recently retired special forces guy, based on a true story I might add, um, who leads some good guys. I'll put it that way. Um, he talks about oath keepers, and it's not all sunshine and roses. He tries to recruit some of the guys in his unit, and some of them turn away, and some of them are reluctant. It's pretty real, but the oath keepers. Um, uh, rally and and provide some leadership and and it's not just a like a, a an advertisement for oath keepers but um, people like that um, in the military and law enforcement come together and say you know what we're not going to do all these bad things I firmly believe that you know Jack it'd be so easy to come on to a podcast and say I believe the entire military and all of law enforcement is out to get you and they're a bunch of fascists and all that other stuff. There are bad people in uniform. There are sure. bad people in you know any, any kind of profession. But in the end, uh, the military and law enforcement and the decent people in it are the ones that save the day here. Um, and, and a lot of civilians join up with them and do the right thing. So that's why it's hopeful. And it's hopeful because it's... It's not what I expected. I went into this. I'll be very honest with you. A couple years ago, I was a little bit more of uh, the persuasion of military and police are pretty much bad guys. 
And then I started meeting more of them and having these conversations with them. And that's really what changed me. And that change is reflected in here. So I think that's very real, too, because I'm talking to the same kind of people you're talking to, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the problem for the general person that's waking up to abuses is when you start looking for the abusive police officer, or the abusive federal agent, there's lots of them because yep. there's lots of them period good bad indifferent right yeah. so i have i call it the 10% scumbag theory that roughly 10% of the population is scum and i have a new scientific paper out that talks about basically 5% of of everybody being a sociopath that you know i only got to bridge another 5% to pull that off now um but that means if there's a million of something then there's 100,000 that are in that factor and then society keeps a lid on them to a degree but when you give them power or you give them a gun you give them a badge a lot of that surfaces now you got citizen journalism which i think is a good thing catching these guys in the act but for every one of those ass clowns there's nine guys going that's not us you know and that's why i've always called them well you nine guys need to grab that knucklehead and you need to straighten them out uh but it's not always that simple but i think you're you're dead on there and i think it's important for us as citizens Keep the pressure on that 10%, but let's not forget the good job the 90% do. And here's another nuance to all that, and I agree with everything you said. And by the way, I used the uh, 10% scumbag figure uh, in books, probably five and six, <laughs> and it came directly from you, my friend, so thank you. Um, but um, one of the other reality things that makes life a little more complicated and involves um, good cops and good military guys, and that is what I think is going to happen at the very outset when they're triggering events and there's all kinds of chaos – I think quite a few military guys and law enforcement guys, because they're sheepdogs, I'm sure your listeners know what that term means, um, but they're sheepdogs, they're going to rush out and they're going to want to help people and they're going to you know, maybe fight back some of the riots and do that kind of thing. And, and so there'll be this initial rallying around you know, the government kind of thing. And then I think what will happen is slowly, it might take days, it might take weeks, I don't know how long it'll take. These, these guys, men and women, I should say, are going to one by one start thinking, you know what, um, this crisis is kind of being used to maybe do some bad things. And they're going to start thinking. They'll all come to these conclusions at different times, but there'll be this slow um, change of attitude, I think. And in the book, that happens. A lot of military and law enforcement instantly rally uh, around their, their command, basically. And then they start to think about it more, and then some of them start to peel off and become you know, actively patriots and actively opposing some of the loyalist guys. So that's another bit of reality that, see, it makes things more complicated. It's not comic book stuff, but it's real. And again, this is all based on conversations I've had with guys. Well, I, I completely agree, and I think it's what you see in many people that eventually kind of wake up to reality as they go through that. But a situation like you're talking about forces the conversion to happen a little bit faster, and when that happens, the conversion goes one way or the other. It goes more toward tyranny or more toward liberty. But, I mean, when we look at, like, if you look at the people that they would use as their first line of defense at a national level, you're talking about National Guard reservists, U.S. military, specifically Marines and Army, would be your your, your big four right there. And the majority of the people that are there serving as military police or infantry combat arms, that were the people with this kind of training, are blue-collar, red-blooded Americans out of the heartland of this country. And they'll follow orders until you start telling them, well, you need to go suppress this, and that's their brother, their uncle, or cousin. Or it very well could be. And all of a sudden, that reality is, is there for them. It's one thing to send people to go take an objective overseas, it's another thing to deploy them in their own backyard. It changes the way they have to think. Exactly right. And 
I hope none of this ever comes up. I know you share that too, but I, I got to say that's exactly what's going to happen. Uh, folks are going to um, they're going to come to some new conclusions. It's not as scary and dire as everybody thinks it's going to be. So there's some hope to this, and and good. We need a little bit of that in this uh, in this community. We need a little bit of hope. You're you're always talking about the hope, and you're always talking about you know don't don't focus on these things. Look at the long term, and that needs to get out in a in a you know a fiction and novel sort of way too, instead of just a podcast. So it, it sounds to me like. My show and the forum together have contributed a lot to this book. Is is that the case? Oh my goodness, yes, and uh, it's it's absolutely true. And and here's and here's all the different ways it has. Um, uh, first of all, you got me prepping. Um, I remember I started listening to you in late June of 2008. Um, I was member number 173, I think, on the forum, and now you have a jillion members on the forum. <laughs> and uh, and you got me prepping. And the reason you got me prepping. Because there's a lot of other stuff out there, but the reason you got me prepping was well, there are two reasons. One, you're you're not insane. You're a completely normal human being, and and I I, I come at this you know survivalism kind of prepping thing thinking, boy, those are some weirdos. Those are the crazy guys I always see on the news who live in a bunker and all that other stuff. That's not me. I mean, to say that I can operate in polite society very, very well and you'd never know I was a prepper is an understatement. I mean, I don't like that crazy stuff. And so you weren't crazy. The other reason that you got me prepping was you and I have similar backgrounds. We uh, we both grew up in rural areas. We both had some country boy skills. We could do some stuff. Then we went through a career thing that was supposed to be great for us because, you know, we were doing all these wonderful career things, but we lost a lot of our country boy skills. And then we had kind of a reawakening where we, we reacquired them. And so those were the two things that, that attracted me to uh, your podcast and then your forum. So from that, I got prepping, which was the main thing that influenced this book. And then also the forum, which is fantastic, uh, taught me a million, million things. And, um, then there were moderators. I, I became a moderator, which is a great honor um, on your on your forum. And I started meeting these people, the fellow moderators. And I won't go into details because they they you know they need their privacy. But sure, I don't know if people know the amazing set of people that moderate the TSP forum. We have some special operations folks, um, and then handy enough for me writing a book um, an amazing proofreader right yeah absolutely <laughs> you know who that is yeah absolutely and, proofread my book on money i mean it, amazing in two days exactly and so where else can you you have this this group of people who know what they're talking about i am not a uh, former military i'm not former law enforcement i will never pretend to be i have some idea about how military things work um but i you know i don't have any expertise well i had some amazing moderators who could tell me some things, give me some guidance. They could um, look over these things from a military um, perspective. By the way, the book isn't all military. In fact, most of it is is not military at all. And then, you know, oh, handily enough, we ha here we have a proofreader um, who, who did two-day turnarounds um, on these books for me, which is just unbelievable. Then there was tons of encouragement from these um, moderators. And so, the moderators had a big role in it too. There were smaller roles too. The uh, the logo uh, for the book was designed by Nicodemus, um, who's on the forum, who's an amazing graphic designer. But um, and and there's just all kinds of support. So this, if it weren't for TSP, I never would have prepped. And if it weren't for prepping, I never would have had a reason to write this book. I never would have thought these thoughts. I never would have become aware and started figuring out what was going on and connecting what I see at work. 
to to the need to prep and and how to prep and why to prep. So without without TSP, there never would have been this book. And so I thank you very much, Jack. That's very heartfelt. Well, I, I thank you for including us in it. There's you know, and I, I don't expect anybody to ever like throw themselves on a sword or something to say they got material from somewhere. But there's a lot of people in this industry and many others that take a whole bunch of material from one place, put it in another place, and act as though it's completely original. And I think that's like a disservice not to like even an individual but to a whole community because like like you're saying here, a lot of what we do, a lot of what I put out on the air comes from the forum, comes from listener feedback. This community is what's built this, you know, this this itself and, and all of the fruits that come from it. I think your book is just or your books is just the latest example of that. And I think that's like one of the hallmarks is a true com- of a true community is it produces things. Right, it produces new things that that go on and take a life of their own, and then they reproduce. And uh, so, so I thank you for like you know not uh, letting go of the roots, so to speak, when when you brought this out. Yeah, and it's it's my nature. I'm a, I'm a humble guy because I don't think I'm particularly talented at many things. There are a couple things I can do well, like my day job. But um, and and this gets into the the amazing fact that this book came about. Um, but I'll, I'll finish the thought about being humble. I'm humble, and I can say TSP did a lot. Um, a lot of the moderators gave me a ton of help. Um, and, and some of the characters in the book, the real-life people, gave me tons and tons of ideas and helped me with it. But back to the amazing thing that this book even exists. Um, you're not going to believe this, but, I mean, I have no incentive to lie to you about this. I don't read books. And I'm going to say that again because it's crazy. <laughs> I don't read books. And the reason I don't read books is I'm really busy I don't have a lot of time. I like reading books. I read Patriots years ago, and I read um, Lights Out, um, and I listened to the audio book of One Second After. Other than that, I don't know of any fiction book I've read in the last 20 years. I can't name one. So here's how little I knew about how to write a book. I sit down and decide I'm going to write this book, which is a story I can tell in a while if you want to hear it. But I'm sitting down, and I go, okay, how do you do this? I didn't know how the quote marks go, like, you know, a quote mark and a comma and all that other stuff, like even simple formatting stuff. So I had to get up, and I went over to my wife's nightstand, and she had some book, some fiction book she was reading. I opened it up, and I looked, and I saw that the commas go inside the quote marks. That's the level of <laughs> of non-expertise I had in writing books. And then um, and how this book came about, it's the Easter Bunny. Um and it started off because I had to come up with a way to tell my wife who is, is you know, she's not against prepping. She just doesn't understand it. And she grew up in a very... You say we got a healthy dose of normalcy bias going on there. Healthy, healthy dose. She grew up in a very upper middle income world where nothing bad ever happened. And I didn't, let me put it that way. And um, I understand what violence is. And I understand that bad things can happen and all these other things. And so she really has no frame of reference. So she thinks that I, I guess, overreact to things. Um, So uh, I had to come up with an explanation for when an event occurred and we either needed to leave or if we're going to bug in, why there were a bunch of supplies that mysteriously, um, you know, came, came about, why they mysteriously appeared the prepper fairy came. The, well, it's the Easter Bunny, Jack. The Easter Bunny brought him. Okay. <laughs> that was what I was going to say because it's very important um, for 
I think, spouses that have reluctant other spouses to not gloat and not say, I told you so. I mean, you want your spouse to live through this, and you guys want to make it, and you want your family to make it. The quickest way to screw that up is to say, I told you so, you were wrong, and now we're doing things my way. Um, don't, don't do that. So I had to come up with a way to explain the food and the ammo cans and the water filter that, that magically appeared, and I came up with the Easter Bunny. So I started running through this Easter Bunny speech in my mind, and I, it was an important speech. In a lot of ways, it's probably the most important talk I'd ever have with my wife, right? I mean, it's a life-or-death kind of thing. And uh, so I started outlining it. You know, I just kind of drew up little notes. And then I looked at these little notes, and I realized that my outline had uh, things about why this is happening, why a collapse is occurring, um, what needed to have been done, uh, you know, the prepping, uh, what was done, you know, what I did to prep, why we need to, to do things like bug in, why we need to bug out. And I started looking at this, and this was a compact and kind of perfect explanation of why you need to prep and how you need to prep and what steps you need to take thereafter. And then I thought, this would be kind of a cool little story. So I thought, yeah, I've never really written anything, but I mean, I've I don't know, I've done 6,000 posts or something on the TSP forum, so i got a little writing experience. Um, I'll just do kind of a little short story. There were some short stories that were on the forum at the time, and I thought, I'll just try it out. It'll probably be no good. So I kind of wrote this up, and I never put it up on the forum. And then uh, then I looked at it, and I thought, well, this this is kind of cool. And then I kept working on it. And I, I'm not an early riser, but for the past two and a half years, I've been getting up at about 3.30 in the morning, and waking up and writing and editing and um, doing it for a couple hours before you know my family wakes up, and this this little Easter Bunny outline started growing and growing and growing, and then pretty soon it was it was a pretty okay story, and I thought well I'll self publish it, and then um, got a hold of Prepper Press, who's fantastic by the way, and uh, and they they wanted to put out all ten books, so anyway that's how it grew from the Easter Bunny speech. Are, are there some things that maybe you learned about yourself in writing this book? Oh, my goodness, yeah. Um, to be talk about myself for just a moment, and then I'll talk about kind of the larger points. But I really learned why I'm like I am. I mentioned, you know, growing up and uh, things were not spectacular. And um, I learned that I'm the way I am, which is always kind of – I'm not paranoid or anything. I don't expect bad things, but I'm kind of ready for things. I'm the guy who – when the lights go out, somebody goes, does anyone have a flashlight? And I do because I can understand that lights go out on occasion, that kind of thing. So I, I learned a lot about why I'm like I am. Um, and that was, that was something I learned, um, tons and tons about prepping again from, from all the interactions. I learned about, um, more about the food things I need to learn about some gardening things. Um, uh, I learned a whole bunch about weapons and military things that I really didn't know about. I learned about morale, um, the necessity for morale, for people feeling like things are normal, not in an artificial way like the normalcy bias you mentioned, but in the sense of having hope. And, uh, for example, in, it comes up in book seven or eight or something, so I'm not spoiling too much, but um, there's a Halloween that comes up, and the kids in the community really, really need to have a normal Halloween to the extent possible. Well, you know, there's not a lot of food out there. Um, the government supplies some, um, but there really isn't enough. And what they supply is kind of like p- 
you know, mashed potato mix and kind of simple foods. So these kids really need something. Well, I, in real life, by the way, um, take all the extra Halloween candy every year that, you know, my wife totally overbuys. And uh, I vacuum seal it, and I've got it stored. So I've got a bunch of little Halloween candies, and, and then I describe that, you know, in the in the book. They give it out at the community, and these kids have a kind of normal Halloween. Well, stuff like that is really, really important. And I kind of knew that in my head, but I didn't really appreciate how important that is until I started writing things like, you know, the Halloween scene and all of that other stuff. Um, and, you know, something – Probably one of the biggest things that I learned about all this, again, I kind of knew it in my head, but I didn't really internalize it, was the the role of community, the necessity of community when there's a collapse. You've talked about this from day one. You've talked about this lone wolf syndrome where people think they're going to run off to a national park you know, with a bug out bag and they're going to live happily ever after for years and years. It's complete nonsense. With a quick stop at Walmart to lose its own way, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. To get some Doritos or something. But, um, no, it's, <laughs> it's completely, uh, it's, it's a fallacy. And it's not just, you know, this lone wolf thing isn't just something I disagree with. It's something that's going to get a lot of people killed. And to the extent I can, I know you have, um, dissuade people of that bad idea I want to because I think it's going to save some lives so but and so I knew that in my head but the way I put you it know all, just if I could stop you right there yeah. one of the places that will really kick your ass is in the type of scenario you're outlining yep. it's one thing to be a lone wolf in a complete total everything is gone no semblance of structure breakdown but I mean, without an asteroid, that's not likely to occur. Trying to be a lone wolf while there still is some community, there still is some law enforcement, there still is some structure, that will get your ass either killed or locked up. And when we had Selko on that lived through the Balkan Wars, he said when it all ended, there were people that survived till the end, and as soon as order was restored, the very first thing they had to do was leave. Because they had been so obnoxious and brutal that as soon as there was any level of semblance, they knew they were dead after the event. So they yep. got the hell out of there. Exactly right. You know, and the community that builds up around uh, the main character's cabin um, starts performing some basic governmental services. You know, the kind of governmental services that people actually need, things like security. Um, there's even a, a little uh, makeshift postal service, which I think is kind of important. And no, I didn't get that idea from that Kevin Costner movie. Um, but anyway, you know, the postman or whatever. There's a there's a kind of a voluntary library. I've never seen that, so I don't know. But it's still a fun. <laughs> I haven't either. I mean, I just heard oh, okay. about it. But you know, there's like a little a little library, all on a voluntary basis. There's a there's a court system. Um, there there's some crimes that are tried out there, and and you know, the community decides. Um, due to the leadership of the main character, um, uh, who's a lawyer in the book, um, that they're going to follow the Constitution. And so that's woven in there. And it things about this, you know, Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Well, that sounds good and everything, but it means guilty guys go free. But wait a second, that's actually important. So there's sort of that debate. So there's kind of a, there's a functioning court system that's very simple and very fair. So there are these necessary government services that this community comes together and provides. But guess what they don't fool with? All the goofy stuff that nobody needs. Uh, there's no EPA out there. There's no, you know, fill in the blank excessive stuff because the old government tried to do that. The old government ran out of money and the old government just completely overdid it and nobody cares about that stuff anymore. They care about what needs to be done. And yes, a community needs to do stuff collectively. I'm 
I'm a libertarian, I'm not a collectivist, but there is a role for collective action. As long as it's voluntary, that being the key, um, it's the only way to do it. So that's something I, I never filled in all those blanks and ran through that process in my head um, about that. And then another kind of minor thing I learned um, was how hard it is to write a 3,200-page book uh, without any experience. <laughs> um, and uh, I learned a lot about the publishing industry too, which was which was fascinating. So those are some things that I that I learned from this. It's been one of the best experiences of my life, um, and and I'll I'll never be the same. Uh, it's it's changed me in an absolutely positive way, absolutely positive way. Awesome. And like you were talking about collective action, I think that's absolutely true. And I think people should be able to largely govern themselves. And I think that's what you're saying there. Yep. And that's why, like, you'll hear me probably three or four times a month basically say, if you get involved with an HOA, you are retarded. Don't do it. Uh, but you've never heard me say they should be outlawed. Because if you want to willingly subject yourself to that level of additional scrutiny and security, fine. And it makes my life miserable. I'm looking for land right now. We found a five-acre place. It's like covered in mesquite trees and stuff like that. And we're like, deed restricted, eh? What's that mean? Well, there's an HOA, and you got to get approval for a fence. you got to get approval for a shed and all that. Maybe we could even possibly deal with that. And like, can we have chickens and goats? No. Mm-hmm. Really? No. Okay, well, it, you guys can have that, but we're not going to participate. And I think that's, like, for collectivism to work, it has to be voluntary collectivism. I'll choose my community. I'll choose what part to be involved with. If I don't like it, I won't show up or I'll leave, you know. And that really is the foundation of the the, the, the federal component, the Republican government that put this country together, that states were supposed to do that. If state A did something stupid, everybody would go to state B, and state A would have to do something to bring them back. Um, but we've, you know, we've come far and away from that. Well, and this this voluntarism uh, idea is also described in the book uh, with the other side of the coin describing it. I just described how this community gets together and they have minimal government and they they do great things. Well, I described the flip side of that, and that is several characters in the book um, are loyalists and they love big government. They live in Seattle. I'm I'm in Olympia, Washington, Western Washington, and Seattle in the book is. A basket case of badness, as it is in real life, gigantic government and insanity. And then there's the state capital, which is Olympia, which is um, you know the state capital, so the loyalists control it, and they they do their stuff there. Well, there are characters in Seattle and Olympia who love big government. Um, they they profit from it, they they administer it, and they really really like it. And you hear from their perspective how there are all these terrible people out there, these so-called, uh, so-called patriots who are doing bad things. And isn't it great that, you know, every time I need to go to the grocery store, um, the government has food for me there um, via something called the F cards, the freedom cards. You can figure what other people um, started calling the F cards. But anyway, the freedom cards, basically the government in the book, to give away one teeny little thing, they, uh, they take everybody's savings and they say, now you have a card that you can use um, to go get food, and we've, we've uh, securitized um, all the private investment in the United States. It now belongs to the government. But the good news is you can use your life savings with this F card to go get you know, a minimal amount of food. See, that's part of the partial collapse thing instead of people foraging around for you know, dandelion sure. greens. And so there are some people, and we all know them in life, um, who love to be, quote, taken care of. And by the government, and 
and you get to see from their perspective how they deal with all these changes and how they, some of them, start changing their minds, too. So that voluntarism well, thing, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And I also think that people like that, you know. When you, 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 you've talked about how like the government spent all its money and has no more money left, but the reality is the government spent all our money, <laughs> and and then they also spent money that doesn't exist. They they, they the, the ability to create money is what's allowed them to do many of these things. And to me, people like that are in for a real tough awakening when the the fact that the, not only is the till empty, but there's a hole in the bottom of it and you can't fill it back up is realized. And uh, an awakening would be a minor understatement, I think, as to what some of those folks would go through, because being taken care of is fine until your your master stops maybe taking care of you in the way that you wish to be taken care of. Yeah, not only is it a shock in the sense that there isn't stuff for people to go just get for free, and so it's not just a physical needs kind of shock, but it's a entire worldview shock. Most people in this country, to varying degrees, most people... Just assume that since they're Americans, stuff's going to go great, and there'll always be food, there'll always be everything, that life like we have it in America is somehow normal. Um, I love, basically, life in America. I'm glad we have stuff, and, and I wouldn't trade places with any other country. But as you know, you've, you've lived overseas for a period of time. Um, the way we have it here is not typical in the world, and it's not typical throughout history. So, so many people have absolutely no idea what's about to hit them. They can't even conceive of that. And I don't mean that as an exaggeration. I mean they cannot conceive in their mind about um, how it's going to be, that you might have to, for example, work for a living, um, that you might have to grow your own food, that you might have to take care of yourself, um, you might have to go find a doctor and figure out how to pay that doctor. Um, all these things are going to be a gigantic, gigantic shock, and you're so right about the money supply. I talk about that in the book. I use your example. I give you credit, by the way, for the Monopoly money thing. <laughs> what if you're playing Monopoly and somebody gets a color copier and prints twice as much money? Do you really think Boardwalk's still going to be 500 bucks? Um, and so there's that, and and that's a component too. And I describe the political side of this, you know. Politicians are the ones doing this. By the way, we're the ones doing this. We keep electing yes. knuckleheads. It's our yeah. fault. It's we, we always fault. we always tend to say us and them, and we don't understand them are us. They're yeah. us. We did this. We let them do it. We put them there, and we keep saying stupid crap like, "Well, we don't have a choice." Well, yeah, you do. You just keep making the wrong freaking one. You know, at least we do collectively. And I, you know, I try to walk a line between. Look, I know a lot of the audience says I don't do that, but we collectively do. And you know, one of my new favorite sayings is we can we can ignore uh, the where we, we can choose our actions, but we can't choose the consequences of our actions. Exactly right. You know, and I've without giving too much away, I've been in conference rooms where political decisions are made, and I know what motivates politicians, and uh, most of it's not good, by the way, as you know. Um, and I, let me put it this way. I know what sells. I know, at least in my state. Now, Washington State and the western part of Washington State is far more left-wing than virtually any other part of the country. So what I'm going to say doesn't apply everywhere, but it applies here. I know what messages work uh, with the sheeple. And um, and it is our fault because by by doing the stupid stuff that politicians continue to do, um, they're doing 
believe it or not, what people want. And, and I, I can prove it. <laughs> I've been there. And yeah. um, I'm not a politician, but anyway. Um, and so, yeah, it is indeed our fault. And that's something that's talked about in the book, too. One of the ways it's talked about is the main character, Grant, who realizes this is all going on, can't believe that everybody thinks he's the crazy one for saying, you guys, this is unsustainable. You mean sure. I'm the crazy one? Are you kidding me? That kind of thing. How important do you think it is that, that unlike, let's say, the Soviet Union a year before the collapse, we're having these conversations now, not just you and I, not just TSP in the audience, but everybody. I mean, this is this has got to be mainstream in some ways. We're still ostracizes those crazy people or whatever, but people all over the country are having these conversations now. Maybe they have a different take than you, I do, you and I do, but at least they're open to the fact that there's something wrong. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a big deal, and I think it's going to end up saving a bunch of lives. It's possible that really super bad things are averted because people wake up and when. I say wake up. I don't mean all of a sudden people start voting for good people and we start cleaning things up. No magic solutions. But people are starting to think that maybe uh, supermarkets might not always have food and, and that sort of thing. They're, gardening. Look at gardening, for goodness sakes. Everywhere I go, people are just, I mean, you know, everybody's gardening. And so there are good signs, and it could, it could um, lessen some of the impacts one of the things that's different between us and Russia and all of the other collapses like Argentina that I think ends up largely saving the day is the Second Amendment. This is not an NRA commercial, but I'm telling you, and it's described in the book, the fact that we have guns and the fact that a lot of people know how to use guns is a huge, huge, huge equalizer in all of this. And that, I think, is going to be um, probably decisive when you when you roll in Oath Keepers and the Second Amendment, and those sorts of things, we have the ability to do things that the Russian people, or the Argentinians, or the, the, the Serb, or not the Serbs, but the Bosnians you were referring to earlier, they didn't have the ability to do. But the awakening is huge. People are getting it. I am so curious how this is going to play out. You know, in two years, are we going to see prepping even more mainstream? I certainly hope so, but um, it's helping is the answer. Yeah, no, I mean, on, on, on the armed thing, I, I always used to strike me, even back when I was a kid, you know, I was 15, 16 years old in the Pennsylvania Deer Woods. And the main reason I got into archery uh, very early was when I heard that there were a million deer hunters out in rifle season. <laughs> I thought there wasn't much room for me, so I better go out in bow season when there wasn't that many people out there. Uh, but even then, I would think to myself, you know, because this was, you know, as we were leading up to, toward the whole thing in Iraq and all, and this was way before Desert Storm, Desert Shield, but they were already talking about things like, you know, Iraq has a million-man army. I'm going, well, hell, in Pennsylvania, we had a million deer hunters with high-powered rifles, and that's just Pennsylvania. And I think that is a huge equalizer, and could it lead to some skirmishes and things like that that might not have otherwise happened? Yes, but will it suppress things like went on with the London riots? Absolutely, and you know, does it happen? Has it happened here already? Look at Hurricane Andrew. Look at uh, the L.A. riots. Yes, it's happened. People have gone to the defense of their own property successfully and shockingly avoided prosecution for doing it. Mm-hmm. You mentioned London. There's nothing more pathetic, I think, uh, out there than the fact that during the London riots, there was a spike on Amazon in London, or not in London, in England, for sales of baseball bats. Yep. Think about this. Your city, your country's burning down, and you're on Amazon trying to get a FedEx truck to bring you a baseball bat. That is so pathetic. 
You know, I think you're hitting something that a lot of people have left out about that. Most people have pointed out that, hey, that was what they were left with as a potential uh, defensive tool. What you're hitting at there is they didn't even have that. They had to wait till after it to go get one. <laughs> Just in time inventory. Oh yeah. my goodness, we're all going to learn about what a terrible idea that is. But you know about that. And you would think those guys had cricket bats already or something. You know, those are. Pre- <laughs> of course, there was a story about. So I don't remember if I covered this. You don't remember you, you maybe heard it about it or not. But there was a a guy that broke into a house. I tried to rape a young girl. She was like 15 or 16 years old. The the father and his his brother-in-law come home, catch the guy in the act, and beat the guy senseless with a cricket bat. Because yeah. he tried to get away. They chased him out of the house, and they beat his ass in the middle of the front yard. And then they call the police. The police come and arrest both the guy that got in the house and tried to rape the girl and the two men who beat his ass, and they got more jail time than the criminal. Unbelievable. Because they said once he was out of the house, you didn't need to continue to assault him, and they charged him with assault with a deadly weapon. Because once the bad guy's out of the house, here's the thinking in other parts of the world, and quite honestly, some parts of the United States. Well, it's now up to the professionals. Don't don't dirty your hands. We'll let the police take care of it. The government will take care of it. No, no, no. There's some things. The government wasn't there to prevent what happened in that house. And you have to take care of some things. And the way I grew up, that's exactly what happened to anybody that did that kind of thing. It, there were no police reports. I mean, <laughs> none at all. <laughs> well, and if the police did come out to a call like that, they would have took the guy that needed to go away. They would stop by the hospital on the way. They might have hit a few bumps, right? You know, a little intentionally or unintentionally. But, I mean, in South Texas to this day, if you pick the wrong ranch to, to, to rustle the cattle on, you might find yourself hanging from a, a, cross, a cross limb off of a mesquite. Yep. And, and you might just disappear. And I know some people think that's brutal justice, but there's a reason there's not a lot of cattle rustlers. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> it's not a good profession. That's right. You know, and it comes with a risk-reward ratio that's not very good anymore. I mean, back, I guess, in the 1880s, it was a different story. But uh, hopefully we'll never be looking at that kind of society. But I think your view of a partial breakdown is much more realistic and something I've been trying to get along uh, to people for a long time. So what exactly is it with the title, the 299 <laughs> Well, it's um, there's some hope in that. The, the 299-day period goes from the, the big triggering event, sort of if you had to pick one day when the collapse started. And by the way, you're so right uh, that the collapse is already underway. So I say the, the one kind of dramatic day when the collapse The started. point where everybody goes, oh, crap, it's real. Yeah, where they turn on CNN and there's a little tickler or whatever at the bottom, a banner that says the United States of America has collapsed, stay tuned, that kind of thing. So it's the big event. 299 days after that, and this is the first chapter, it's technically the prologue in the book, and it's also the last chapter, which happens to be the 299th chapter. So the first and last chapter are the same chapter. And in that, um, the 299 days have passed, and the main character is going off to a gubernatorial um, uh, inaugural ball. Um, somebody he knows has become the interim governor of the new state of Washington. And so he's reflecting back on what happened in those short 299 days. The reason 299 days as a time period is hopeful is the, the nastiness, the collapse, the effects, and the fight that ensues takes just 299 days. Now, that doesn't mean that after 299 days, everything's okie-dokie. That's when the rebuilding starts, and that's hard, too. And that's really where it ends is the 299th day. I don't 
talk a lot about the rebuilding stuff because I might in some some future books to be quite honest. But uh, it's a it's the short period from the the collapse to when uh, things are are now on the path to being okay. Gotcha. It's not the ferry hasn't waved a wand and made everything better and everybody's a libertarian. It's at least there's enough stability to start putting the bricks back up. Yeah, enough stability to go have an inaugural ball. And I know you've just put a lot of work into developing this series, but I'd love to see you, once we, we get this out to everybody, do that second series. Because every time I watch a disaster movie or, or whatever, and like, you know, like uh, what was the one where the, where the world was going to flood and they had the ships? Uh, 2012, right? I think it would be a fascinating story. Okay, well, there's a couple hundred thousand people left. What are we going to do now? Yeah. You know, because it ends with this, you know, triumphant music and everybody's going to be OK. And let's forget that 7.9 billion people just died or whatever. But like the, the, the whole concept of, yeah, there's some stability now, but everything's different. What would that world look like to me? That that would be absolutely fascinating. Well, and I and I want to do even more books in this, uh, the rebuilding stuff. And that's where I can talk about my ideas about how. Things would be better if they were done my way, right? I hate utopians, but I just <laughs> I want to make make the state of Washington my particular way. The other set of extra books that that might be coming out, um, we have what we call bonus chapters, and those are the sort of side stories and uh, those kind of things. We're giving out free bonus chapters um, when people go on the website and sign up and give us their email address. Which, by the way. We don't sell to people. We don't give away. You know, all that kind of stuff. They get a, a bonus chapter, but I've got dozens of bonus chapters outlined some of them are already written and um talk to the publisher and there's at least one or two more books so what's that 11 and 12 of of bonus chapters um some will give away in fact we may end up giving away you know a good chunk of them um as people sign up for the the various books as they come out but um between the bonus chapters and what happens in the rebuilding phase there's there's a lot more books available in in my head and outlined. That's what's so amazing about this, Jack. Again, I don't read books. I have no writing experience. I've got this whole world sketched out on my Macintosh right here, and I've got, you know, I've got another thousand pages of of stuff to talk about. And there's a there's a famous line from a, a Willie Nelson song, and uh, it's something about uh, you don't record a record if you ain't got nothing to say. Well, for the first 40-some years of my life, I didn't have anything to say. I was, didn't have anything particularly interesting to talk about. I didn't have enough life experience to, to talk about. Now, I do have something to say, and it comes flowing out, and it's amazing. That's awesome. And uh, I want to ask you about release dates and all. Before I do that, you brought up one of my favorite guys in the world, Willie Nelson. So i got to throw out a Willie Nelson quote that's kind of <laughs> off the cuff, but it's my favorite one ever. He was interviewed one time, and he said, Willie, what would you do if they told you you couldn't make music anymore? And he says, well, if I could have figured out who they were, I would have killed them a long time ago. <laughs> I love that guy. And I, I became like a, an uber fan. I always liked him, but when I heard about that, uh, that is just awesome. But anyway, uh, let's so people can go to your website, 299days.com, and it's 299days.com. Yep. Spell it out. And that site's been up since August 1st, and your book one and book two of the ten books are planned for release on September 1st? That's right. And people can buy them on Amazon. There will be an e-book, Kindle. There'll be hard copies, and uh, on the forum, there's been a fair amount of traffic. People saying, 
can we do autograph things? And uh, we'll have a way to do that. Um, you know, uh, the publisher will be involved in that, so that'll be available. That'll be kind of announced in a while. I wanted to make sure there was even any interest in doing that because you got to remember, I don't write books. I mean, one <laughs> of, I mean, that's the crazy thing about this. Um, I should add this. You've talked a lot, Jack, about preppers needing to have a little side business or something they do. You know, maybe if their real jobs collapse, they need to be able to do stuff. That wasn't my motivation for writing these books, but I can really see the prepping value in, you know, having this kind of what I call a part-time job um, and doing that. But anyway, so yeah, that's the that's the availability of the books. Um, and uh, and the first and second one will be released at the same time. Yeah, they're going to come out in two cool. book yeah two book chunks, roughly every three months or so. Okay. Um, the next two books come out, and all the books are written, and then all we have to do is is edit the two books in that three-month period and then format them. And, um, you know, Prepper Press does this for a living, and they do a great job, and they do it quickly. So they're all ready to, to go out, and so they can keep being released. I had a couple reasons um, for doing that. One is if you put all, all ten books, um, you're just going to flood people and drown them out. The other thing is there, there was a – a desire, I guess, or a thought that maybe we should put these books out every six months or something like that. And I actually um, vociferously argued against that, and here's why. I don't mean to be an alarmist, but this message needs to get out. The message in this book series needs to get out now. Um, I want people to, to be using this information now and not waiting because the last thing I need is for a collapse to hit and, you know, we're on book six. I want to get these things out, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I like the time frame of about 90 days in a pair of books. So you're looking at six releases over like a year and a half. And I think that will actually keep fans of the series excited. Because, I mean, you you got a lot of things that go on in your life over a, a lot of these you know, big authors today. They release a book, and then they, the next book in the series, 18 months later, and, you know, they write 1,200-page books. And I, I get it. I, you, you know, it's a hard thing to do, but that's a long time to wait for a fan of an author in between. And I know you don't have any yet, but uh, I'm pretty good at judging stuff. I think you're going to have some in the near future. <laughs> well, thank you. You know, the other... The other thing that's neat about releasing them in sort of a short time frame like this is, let's say, um, you know, hopefully you have me on later, which I'd love to do, and, and we're talking about books uh, five and six, for example. Well, somebody hears that, and they go, wow, this sounds interesting, and then maybe they can go and get one, two, and three, four, and sure. that kind of thing. So it, it works out well. It's a pretty good plan. Just my business hat as we wrap up here. The other smart thing is by releasing two books at once, you're selling two units per release instead of one unit. And that's very smart. I don't know if you figured that out or your publisher did, but uh, that gets the Jack Spirico business side seal of approval for smart marketing. <laughs> well, it's funny you bring that up because uh, that was actually the, uh, the publisher's motivation. But I originally had this as four books because the way the story broke into into you know beginnings and endings it was kind of four different segments and at four books these things were way too long they'd be too long they would cost too much money to print and so the original idea to break them into 10 was to have a little bit you know a cheaper book to be quite honest that people could buy and then the publisher cuz again I don't know anything about the publishing world the publisher did make the point that we're basically selling twice as much stuff, uh, lower price, but twice as much stuff. Sure. 
which is a greater overall sale per unit. So that's, uh, like I said, gets my seal of approval from the <laughs> perspective. Anyway, uh, Glenn, this has been an awesome interview. Again, I'd like to thank you for spending your time with us today. And I would again like to reiterate, thank you for serving as a moderator. You mentioned how awesome those people are. And I think a lot of people that are forum members kind of casually don't understand uh, the work that you all do. Uh, a lot of times maybe they disagree with the decision. They don't understand the, the level of community and self-policing and arguing some, you know, positive arguing that goes on behind the scenes to make sure that we're doing things equitably. And, you know, I've always said that the way I wanted the forum run, and I've left you guys to do it, but I've said with guidance, I want this run like a constitutional republic. We have a terms of freaking service, and we follow it, and they follow it, and you guys do a great job of, of doing just that. Uh, and I am blessed for having you guys there. I don't pop in the form as much as I should anymore, but I uh, don't think for a minute that your work and the work of the other moderators isn't massively appreciated. And uh, I'm going to recommend everybody get on by your site. Uh, do you have something set up like for an alert or something, notification, like you mentioned email address on the site now? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. If people give us, and it's right on the homepage there, their email address and their name. Give us a fake name. We don't care. Um, we will send you a bonus chapter when they're done, and that'll be very soon. And we'll also send you a link on September 1st saying, here's how to buy it. So you won't have to remember to buy it. You'll get that reminder. And no one ever needs to worry. I know you said it, but no one ever needs to worry about anybody that I have on this show that collects an email address or something like that about giving your email address out. If they do it, I track them down and cut their uh, right big toe off with my K-Bar knife for uh, violating your trust. So uh, feel free to go ahead and, uh, and uh, submit your email to things like this from our guests. <laughs> you betcha. Yeah, we wouldn't do that. That would be bad news. All right, folks, with that, this has been Jack Spierko today along with Glenn Tate, helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough. Or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way You don't have to be another face in the crowd
shut 